we've been going through Paul's letter to the Colossians for the last few weeks. And, and as we've been going through it, we've been seeing Paul reminding the church at Colossae and reminding us that Christ is our center. And we've been looking at different facets of that every week. And this morning, we are going to be talking about kind of a, a, a difficult idea for our culture to really get behind. We're going to be looking at Christ, our master. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the New Testament reading. It's Colossians three eighteen to four one. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, when we come to passages like this, we really begin to realize that our culture is so different from the culture in which your scripture was written, from the culture in which you lived. I ask this morning that you would give me clarity, that you would speak through me, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be willing to reassess our own selves, our own ideologies, our own cultural assumptions as we think about submission and what that means in light of who you are. I pray that you would be with us this morning, reminding us of your love and your grace once again. I pray this in your name. Amen. So as we begin, uh, as I just hinted at, before we can really understand how we're, supposed to take, how we're supposed to take something out of this passage as 21st century people, I think we really have to take some time and understand what's happening in Paul's own cultural context. We have to think about what he's trying to do in this passage. I think for some of us, we look at this and we almost get a sense of comfort, right? It's, it's, we're seeing this sort of familiar idea of how society is built, how families work. There's no, there's no protesting. There's no rioting. There's no Occupy Wall Street or Portland. There's no worrying about people that are richer than you or people that are poorer than you. It's just know your role and get along as best you can. I think some of us might find that comforting. Others of us, though, we read this passage and we're almost immediately turned off by it. It's honestly going to be difficult for some of us to see how this passage, or Christianity in general, if this is representative of it, could have anything of value to offer us if it's the kind of religion that embraces slavery and heavy-handed, severe patriarchalism. Is that a word? Did I just make that up? I might have made that up. But really... I think some of us are going to start asking ourselves, what sort of unquestioning cult is happening here? People are just being told to obey no matter what. This seems a little bit like nonsense in our own culture. But I think as we place this passage within its own cultural context and its scriptural context, we're going to begin to understand what Paul is doing. 
So right away, we have to reckon with, what is this passage actually saying? And, and Paul here is following a cultural custom that has come to be known as the household code. This was the basis for Greek and Roman households and then for broader Roman society. So the, the, the ordering of life started in the home, and then it just kind of got broader and broader from there, and that's how society was built. And the ideas for this actually stretch all the way back to Aristotle. He was the one who first started coming up with this sort of thing, and Paul is using a very familiar form for this sort of idea. So in Roman, Roman culture, the head of the household was called the paterfamilias, and he was in charge of everything. And, and we have to understand our ideas of family are, are quite a bit different than family back then, so I don't, I don't want to overstate this case, but, but the paterfamilias was sort of almost like the head of a mafia family. Okay, he, he, it, there, there's this mixture of like blood relations as well as business relations, and he kind of oversaw this big network of people that were, you know, related to him either through blood or through business and money. And he, the idea was that he had power and control, this Potter Familius, over his wife, over his children, over his slaves. And this was, this was the idea of a stable society. This is how society functioned. The household code would just kind of keep broadening out. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is Paul embracing this cultural idea, this cultural household code? How many of you remember the Norman Rockwell painting about, I don't know the actual title, but it's the Thanksgiving dinner? You remember this painting? Close your eyes if you have to and get a good picture, okay? Here's the grandparents beaming as they're placing this perfect turkey on the table. The windows behind them are gorgeous and they're flooded with natural light and it's reflecting off the spotless white tablecloth. Everyone at the table is smiling. Everyone. Okay? Moms, grandmas, there is no football game to distract your family from really connecting at this Thanksgiving dinner in the Norman Rockwell painting. There's no crying babies. Most importantly, there is no four bean, 12 bean, or any other number of bean casseroles or salads on this table. Everyone is the perfect amount of hungry. They're, you know, you're eager to eat, but you're not grumpy. The turkey didn't end up taking like eight hours longer than you expected. When you look at this painting, you have to imagine this family has never fought about anything in their history. They are perfect. I think for some of us, it's a natural tendency for us to read Scripture and to read even a passage like this and just assume that Paul is painting a Norman Rockwell picture of the ideal family and social life. And if, if that's our conclusion, then we're going to have to either conclude that Paul and, and, by extension, Christianity really didn't have much to say against slavery, or, or we might have to kind of reimagine, recontextualize what slavery was like. Maybe it wasn't as racially driven. Maybe it wasn't as oppressive as the slavery that we're more familiar with in our country. But what if Paul is doing something else? What if he's not painting a Norman Rockwell painting of family and social life. Do you remember the photography of Dorothea Lange? She was a a photographer during the Great Depression, and probably her most iconic work is um, The Migrant Mother. Do you guys know the one I'm talking about? Black and white. She's holding a baby. There's two small children with with their backs turned from the camera. And this woman is just staring off into the distance, and you see the trouble and toil and heartache etched into her face. I mean, that became almost the face of the Great Depression and the migration in America that took place afterwards. This is not ideal. This is not life at its best. This is reality. It's gritty. It's hard. 
All of its pain, all of its heartache is right there on the surface. Is this what Paul's doing? Is he just saying, you've heard these household codes in your own culture. This is reality. This is how it works. So just settle in and get used to it. As we read this passage in its context, I think what we're going to see is that Paul is neither painting an idyllic world and saying, this is how things are at their best, nor is he saying, this is just how things are. It's not great, but you have to get used to it. Rather, he's turning cultural norms on its head, and he's subverting the power structures of society in his declaration of the gospel. Now, I know that that was a pretty long introduction to get to this point, but I'd like us to look at this passage in three ways. We're going to look at this passage from within Paul's own cultural context, within the literary context of the letter as a whole, and then within redemptive context. And then we'll draw out some implications for Christian households and how the Christian household of the church is to function in Christian mission. So first, let's try to understand Paul's own culture and see how he's subverting the power structures that be. So Paul's writing to a culture that has come to expect that, that children and women and slaves were all to live in deference to the paterfamilias. The male head of the household had absolute power over that household. In Roman law, if the father actually wanted to kill one of his children for something that they had done to embarrass the family, he had that right. The first thing to notice in how Paul goes about not adopting the cultural idea of power is that he actually addresses women and children and slaves directly. He writes in this letter to them directly. Paul assumes that each of these groups that have been completely marginalized and disenfranchised in broader society have been brought into full fellowship within the church. And I think that really this, this is a hard thing for us to fully appreciate and I don't want to be flippant towards the way that people viewed other human beings back then, but imagine this morning if I got up here and started preaching to your cars in the parking lot, or I started preaching to your pets. You see, in Roman culture, disenfranchised people were seen as property. They were the property of the head of the household. So for Paul to actually address them directly and assume that women and children and slaves would be part of this community, hearing his letter to them, worshiping with the other people of God, is a huge assumption. It's a very subtle way, but the level of validation and importance that Paul extends to these people cannot be overstated. Not only is the fact that Paul addresses the disenfranchised people directly counter to his culture, but then the way that he addresses this Potter Familius, this husband, father, master figure, is completely radically different from how his culture would expect him to address these men. The expectation would be that Paul would tell the Potter Familius, keep your households in line. This is how society functions. Make sure your wives are submitting. Make sure your children are obeying. Make sure your slaves are doing what, you, what they're told. Don't allow another slave uprising. Keep your family in line. But he doesn't say that. In fact, each of the other groups in this passage only get one injunction. They're only told to do one thing. The Potter Familius gets three. He has a much tougher job within Paul's own understanding. And as we'll see in more detail in a moment, none of the things that Paul tells this head of the household actually have to do with ruling his household in the way that we would think. It has much more to do with him serving it. Paul is taking a tradition from within his own culture, and he's recasting it in terms of the gospel. Culturally, Paul is undermining secular power structures that seek to exploit the weak. And as we'll see more in a moment, he reconfigures the roles of the weak and the powerful 
in terms of Christ. As I said before, the fact that Paul addresses women and children and slaves directly is culturally shocking, but it also forced his original readers, and it forces us to consider that everything that he's been saying in the rest of this letter applies to those people. We have to now see these disenfranchised people in light of all the rest of this letter. This means that everything he's been saying about the church's relationship to Christ applies to slaves and women and children, the disenfranchised of his own culture. These are the people that Paul is suffering for. These are the people that have been reconciled to God in Christ. These are the ones who have been given the fullness of riches in Jesus, the mystery of God. These are the ones who have been brought to life and united in Christ. These are the people that Paul is praying would receive all power so that they would persevere. Imagine a culture where slaves and children and women were constantly reminded through everything in their lives that they were lesser than, that they were not as important as, not as worthy, to be told suddenly that the king of all things the very same Jesus who created all things, who is the resurrected one, who is the very image and fullness of God himself, God in flesh, that this one is now your life. Imagine after being told that you are not worthy, that you are now God's chosen people, holy and beloved, that there is no longer Jew, Greek, barbarian, slave, or free, but that there is Christ all and in all. It's extremely liberating, and it is honestly impossible to read this passage in light of the rest of the letter, and walk away as if the power structures of Paul's own culture and our own go uncritiqued. All of the people that Paul is talking to in our passage are included in what Paul said just three verses prior. They are members of one and the same body. They are united to one another because they are united in Christ. But even beyond, I think, seeing this household code in the context of the letter, we have to even see it in a broader context, in the context of redemptive history that Scripture maps out for us. And unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack even just the major plot lines of redemptive history that that starts from creation and ends in the recreation of all things. But we do need to see that the way in which Scripture talks about God's mission in the world almost primarily is redemption. And that word itself actually means the buying back of people that have been enslaved, setting them free at cost to someone else. It's setting free the weak and the powerless from exploitation. The great redemptive event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. It's the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt and taking to a land that God had promised them. This becomes the watershed moment in Israel's history. Everything that Israel experiences from that point onward is to be seen in light of this action. This is the mission of God, who by his direct involvement brings out a people that were too weak to free themselves and sets them free. He brings them out of bondage to one of the strongest nations on earth. And so when thousands of years later, when we see Jesus come on the scene and he begins to quote from Isaiah, one of the prophets of old, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now we understand this slavery freeing, this redemption of people that have been in bondage is flooding out into the entire world. And whether you're a mainline liberal who thinks that slavery is just physical, just economic oppression, just societal structures, or if you're a diehard conservative and you think that slavery is just about individual sin, individual hearts, 
people with a spiritual problem, we all have to reckon with the fact that Scripture does not make that distinction. The gospel of Jesus and Paul does not make that distinction. The mission of God is to set free his entire creation from bondage. His entire creation. Individual hearts enslaved to sin and self and the economic and societal structures that exploit and enslave disenfranchised people. And really, this is where all of this begins to bleed over into the implications that this passage has for us. I think far and away, the most amazing thing that Paul does in taking a a, a cultural piece of writing that seems very familiar to people and turning it on its head is that he ties everything, every aspect of every relationship back to Christ. So as we think about how to build a bridge from Paul's culture to our own, what we'll see is that at a fundamental level, Paul is calling all Christians to live up to their name, to embody the message that they have been given, the message of the gospel. So whether you're someone with cultural capital, societal power, or if you're someone that society has tried to exploit, Paul's encouragement is for both parties to respond Christianly with Christ as their master. Seven times in this code, Paul references Christ, each time setting up Jesus as the true head of the household, the true master. And as we wind down to take a look at what we're to take away from this, I'd like us to just kind of circle around a little bit to make sure that in our own minds, we have the story of this Jesus as firmly embedded as Paul does in his mind. The message and person of Jesus are backwards and upside down. Throughout this letter to the Colossians, Paul has eloquently opined that Jesus is the world's rightful Lord. He is the king of all things. He is fully God, the reconciler of all things, the creator of all things. He has absolute power and authority over every square inch of his universe. But as our Old Testament and gospel readings make clear to us, Jesus is a king unlike any other. This king was born in a stable surrounded by noisy, smelly farm animals. He grew up in the sticks, only to become a homeless traveler who spoke in riddles. And he seemed poised to lead a revolution. Thousands of people were flocking to him. He could provide food. He could heal the sick. Soon enough, the power of the Roman Empire would be thrown off. And God's people, the people of Israel, would be led into freedom by Jesus, their Messiah, their new leader of the revolution. But instead of leading a revolution against the oppressive powers of the Roman Empire, Jesus is sold by one of his closest followers for 30 pieces of silver. He's abandoned by all of his friends. He's arrested, embarrassed publicly, beaten, mocked, and given an unfair trial and ignored by public officials that had been put in place to make sure that this sort of outrage didn't happen. And then he's executed like a poor unknown criminal. With the flesh of his back in bloody ribbons, a thorny crown mockingly pressed deep into the flesh of his head, nails pinning him to the rough-hewn wood, he is stripped naked in front of a crowd. He gasps and stutters and bleeds out. Every time he struggles for breath as he's suffocating, he instinctively pushes up on the nails that are beat deep into his flesh, causing even more pain. As his final breath gives out, his executioners are laughing and mocking and dividing up his only belonging on earth, his clothing. This is 
the king. As his resurrection confirms, and as Paul describes for us in this letter, this was no accident. Jesus didn't make some huge miscalculation in planning his revolution that cost him everything. That was his revolution, to give up everything. Do you see that as the creator king, Jesus had absolute right and authority to just blast his rebellious creation off the map? Do you see that even in mercy and love, he he could have entered this realm in any other way? He could have been born the next Caesar and led about a revolution at no cost to himself. He could have entered in and just called us to return to him, and we could have seen his glory, and that would have been the end, but he doesn't. Even though he is our rightful master, he became a slave to sin and death for people like us. Small-minded, small-hearted, selfish, rebellious people like us. And now, when we see that we enter his resurrected life as we have faith in him, when we see that we're united to him through faith and baptism, everything about our lives gets turned upside down. Christians are now called to live out lives of protest, but not protest in the way that we think of it. No matter what your role, no matter what your identity or what your position in society is, if you were in Christ, everything is now different. If you were one of the disenfranchised, perhaps you're the wife of a harsh husband, the child of an overbearing father, or the employee of an unfair boss, then you are to look at your king. He is the one who guarantees you an inheritance. He is your very life, and he was disenfranchised, despised, rejected, and in his weakest moment, he overturned the powers that be. He put them to an open shame in the cross, in his humility. Your identity shifts from being exploited to being a servant of the king who serves you. And don't miss the obvious implication. To be godly is to be a servant. Disenfranchised people that have Christ as their Lord are on the path to godliness far ahead of people with power because serving is godliness. Now, if you're on the other side of the power differential, and I dare say there's probably way more of us in this room than the other, just by virtue of the culture we live in, we all enjoy way more power and freedom than much of the rest of the world has ever enjoyed. But you too are called to see everything differently. You're called to see everything in reference to Jesus, in reference to your true master. But I think this is the hardest corner for us to turn, especially for those of us that have grown up in the church in this region of the world. Because when we think of ourselves in reference to our master, we almost immediately throw out all of that stuff about him being a servant. We start to assume that he'll just work through our power rather than critique our power. I think this is one of the areas that the first world church must reckon with, that the gospel message has within it an inherent critique of power, coercion, and exploitation. Because it is the story of one with all the power, the one who had all the authority, all of the rights to make demands, and he sets it all aside. So as a church, as, as the bride of this king who set everything aside, when we make plans, our plans, our method, our mission, they cannot be tainted and co-opted by power and control. Rather, they must be marked by the backwards upside-downness of a God who became a servant. And... As Paul points out, in case we decide to get these really lofty goals about changing the whole world, this starts at home. This starts in your families. 
So husbands, it's not just that you're called to love your wives. You're called to love them by way of serving them. Parents, it's not just that you're called to raise children to be good members of society or good Christians. You are called to parent them as God has parented you. If you're a cultural contributor, if you have something that society values, whether it's personality, good looks, education, money, or talent, you are called to live out your life like your master, which is to say you are called to live your life as a servant, not trying to climb to the top of your field off the backs of others. Submission does not come naturally for us. It's not something that's encouraged by our culture in any realm, politically, economically, relationally, even artistically. It's so much easier to fight back, to resist, or to embrace individualism and set yourself up as the important one. But the church, the church is called to declare freedom to the world. Freedom freedom from slavery, whether it's the slavery of the sex trade, economic slavery, or the slavery of individual hearts to sin and self. We have to understand that the kind of submission and subversion that made up Paul's message in Jesus' life isn't just giving in to the powers that be. It's not ignoring them and sticking our heads in the sand and hoping that things turn turn out all right. Nor is it giving over ourselves and assuming, taking on that power of our culture and trying to overcome the power of the world with the power of ourselves. Rather, in repentance, in turning back to the king who gave up his claim over everything for us, we embrace humility. We continue the mission of Jesus with the method of Jesus by becoming a servant. It's in the radical giving up of all our power all of our rights, all of our offense, that the powers and the principalities of this world continue to be dismembered and put to an open shame in the cross of Jesus. You see, if you're a part of his church, then you are a part of Jesus. You are in him. Your identity is his identity. He is your master, and your master became the slave of the world. And you are called to be a servant of all. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no matter how many times we remind ourselves of the story of your grace, of the story of your gospel, it is still rightfully shocking that you who are beautiful and powerful over all things became the servant to all of us. You became a servant even to death, giving up your own life. And now, because of your service, because of your humility, we can take part in your life, in your resurrection. Jesus, I ask that we would leave this place as changed people, that we would see ourselves in light of you, that we would become the servants of all because we are servants of you and all things are in you. Feed us now as we come to your table. We pray this in your name. Amen.